TGIM Timari. This is episode 303. So if we can help people's lives be more rewarding than the promise of a relapse, the chances of a relapse go down and the chances of staying sober go up. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Dr. Jason Powers. He took his last drink on June 2003. He is from Texas and he is 50 years old. Jason hosts the Positive Recovery podcast. He is an addiction medicine specialist and the creator of Positive Recovery. I highly recommend you check out the Positive Recovery podcast. I was interviewed on there. And if you want to listen to my chat with Dr. Jason, it was episode number 16. I'm going to have Katie drop the link in the show notes and let me know what you think. All right. And before we get started, I want to tell you all about a course that we are launching in January. So 2021 is a brand new year. We all deserve peace, joy and a sense of calm. This is going to be much more than a 30-day alcohol-free challenge or sobriety course. This course will represent you having the courage and openness to listen to your body and to make a major change in your life. This is going to be a 13-session course geared towards newcomers, and we're going to cover different recovery paths and questions like, is AA right for me? How do I build community? What are some techniques for calming my mind? And the best part of it is that you won't be doing this alone. You're going to join other course attendees on Zoom, and classes will be both lectures and small groups. There will be homeworks and resources that will be emailed to your inbox directly after each class. The registration for this course is officially open now. You can find more details on our website, recoveryelevator.com. All right, guys, let's work on finding your better you. I'm recording this introduction as we are collectively waiting for the election results to be announced. This won't air until weeks after I record. However, I did want to take this opportunity to share a little bit about what this week has taught me. What do we do when we are waiting for an outcome? What do we do when we are waiting for a result, for a vacation, for a holiday, for a conversation, a hard conversation? What do we do? I think the answer across the board is we bolt. We leave the here and the now. We disconnect from the present moment. I know, I know, here's another person telling you about staying in the moment. Hear me out though. As we are sitting here waiting for the results of this election to come in, I'm really curious as to how people are spending this waiting period. I've noticed in myself that in the last 60 hours, I've oscillated from crippling anxiety to peace. My routine is the same, though. I still have to make dinner for the kids. I still have to get work done. I still have an agenda, the agenda of a working, busy mom. Sobriety makes us feel all the feelings. And as uncomfortable as this may be at times, it's a true indicator that we are doing this right, that we are staying with ourselves. That's pretty badass, you guys. There's a dance, though. There's a dance between feeling your feelings, acknowledging them, and letting them take you over. So we, we want to feel and process, but we also don't want to get stuck in them, right? In my opinion, that's the tricky part. 
How do we let ourselves close the cycle of a feeling while also taking our power back? I'm no expert at this, you guys. I'm, I'm not. I stumbled upon this passage by Thich Nhat Hanh this morning. It says, even today, you and I can return to our own paradise every time we breathe in and out mindfully. Our true home was not only in the past. It is present now. Mindfulness is the energy we can produce in our daily lives to bring our paradise back. A few words caught my attention here. Paradise is one of them. Our own paradise. How many of us don't even know that this is available to us? By this, I mean something good, something peaceful, something that we already are without even trying. Home should be paradise. And if it isn't for you, I sure hope that you know you are deserving of it. That a return to ourselves should feel like the biggest, most warmest hug. Also, I've never seen the words mindfulness and energy be a part of the same sentence. Mindfulness is the energy we can produce. I think a lot about energy these days. How to create it, how to protect it, how to exchange it, how to gift it. It hadn't crossed my mind that living mindfully is basically like putting high-octane gas into my car. I don't know about you all, but I love a good incentive. On weeks like this week, on days like today, where I hear that the general consensus is that we all feel depleted, low energy, and exhausted, I will take advantage of any tool that will put a little more gas into my energy tank. And so I like this reframe. The more mindful I am, the more I can protect my energy. I'll take it. All right. Eso es todo, amigos. And before we hear from Jason, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe Ari, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe Ari is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. With supportive and educational webinars hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $19 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online webinars, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Dr. Jason, hey, how's it going? How are you? I am well. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I am very excited to have you on our show and I know that our listeners are going to learn and benefit a lot from this interview. So thanks to you and let's get right to it. I know you're in recovery with us as well. So when was the last time you had a drink? June, sometime in June, 2003. I, I'm in recovery and you, you know, alcohol was kind of a, a side dish to the side dishes, if you will. So I was mostly, it was Vicodin and oxycodone, Dilaudid, and a lot of benzos, so clonopin, Xanax. Um, and definitely, you know, I, was, I wasn't shy about drinking. I drank alcoholically, but I, it just wasn't, to me, it didn't kind of activate 
the addiction as much as uh, the prescription pills did. Can you give listeners a little background before we get right into that piece of your story? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? What are your hobbies? And what do you like to do for fun? Okay, sure. Well, I love I love your outtake on life and your perspective, your website. It's very uplifting. I like that you're creating this community. And on that piece, you asked me to describe fun twice, which is not going to be a problem. So I am I'm 50 years old right now. I'm a physician. I specialize in addiction medicine. I live in Houston, Texas. I am also an interventionist. I'm an author. I've got uh, a book called When the Servant Becomes a Master in its second edition, which is pretty cool. I also created a curriculum that is called Positive Recovery that uh, is a lot to do with my story. And I, I can get into it later, but just sort of like the background, I've, I'm married, got three children, 18, 15, and 11, I think. I don't know. You have to ask my wife. I'm vaguely aware of midgets running around my house most of the time, but I love them all. And let's see, what do I do? For fun, I I just started getting into uh, heavy, hitting a heavy bag, which is to me it's just wonderful. But uh, you know my my hands hurt a lot, my knuckles hurt. I love I love exercise, I like biking. I uh, play drums in my house, and you know congas and djembe. Um, I just got a what's it called a um, a cajon, right? So I've got this cajon, which is pretty cool. Fun um, with the cor- yeah, it's awesome. And you know with the quarantine, it is tough to kind of remember what I used to do out of the house. Like my world consists of the inside of my house, the inside of a rehab, the computer screen doing telemedicine and the inside of a grocery store, H-E-B. And that's, that's just so weird, but that's like what, I, what my eyeballs see now. Yeah, it's interesting how much we've shifted and changed our bubble into a whole different perspective and a whole different way of living in the last few months. I know. And tell me a little bit more about your story. Uh, when did you start drinking? When did you start using? And when did you realize that alcohol was no longer serving your goals? Just tell me, tell me about you. Okay. So uh, something you could probably identify with, like my first drug was sugar. And like, I loved it so much that I really wanted, like when people asked me when I was young, what I wanted to do when I was older, I wanted to work in a convenience store because that's where the sugar was. And my mom wasn't really happy about that. She was very emotionally invested in her, one of her children becoming a doctor anyway. But I was 14 years old going into eighth grade, the summer before, no, sorry, summer before ninth grade, summer before ninth grade. And my brother, who I looked up to, told me that marijuana was something that people did and it was cool. And so he got me and my friends high. And that, besides sugar, was like the first I guess, illicit drug that I used. And um, I I did it a lot, like kind of like with sugar. I even, you know, as far as I can remember back, I was making sugar toast and hiding it. And same with marijuana. Like I became a stoner, started smoking a lot. I I would quit for periods of time. There were goals that kind of were important to me that, you know, marijuana couldn't really help. Like I was at a a pretty tough private school in, in Houston. That's where I'm from. And it's called St. John's and it's really academically tough. So, you know, it, it, it just, I, there's no way I would have passed smoking all the time, but I did smoke my fair share, drank a lot in high school and then in college, you know, started experimenting and, you know, I did acid a few times, mushrooms, but mainly, you know, it was, it was drinking a lot and, and, and marijuana. And then I quit for medical school 
except for after each study block. Like we would study like crazy manic people and then we'd have a weekend off and, and I would just get blitzed and become one with the carpet and then got through that. And in kind of like, you know, it's a great story about me meeting my wife and all that, but like I, I didn't really get out of control until I finished with residency and no more eyes were on me. So I kind of was always smart enough to stay out of like the crosshairs and as soon as I finished my residency, I, I, you know, I did it in family medicine because like, I really went to med school to be a surgeon, but it, I just knew there's no way I would be able to like drink and drug the way I wanted to with that like grueling um, training. So I chose family medicine and uh, it was, you know, it was all good, laid back and kind of easy. And then I, I finished that, went in private practice and was able to get copious amounts of like cough syrup with, you know, hydrocodone mm -hmm. and I was swallowing. Unfortunately, that also had an antihistamine, which made me like drool and, and kind of slur my words. And I was taking just like at this, it, it got out of hand, like in a year, like so fast. So I was brand new married and, you know, my wife didn't know what was going on. And I, you know, I was like falling asleep in public and I told people I had narcolepsy I even like went and got a sleep study and manipulated the, the results. I knew how to like take benzos to shorten the sleep latency. And so then I had like, I bought myself some time. People were defending me like, uh, you know, what's wrong with Jason? Oh, no, he has narcolepsy. You know, I didn't have narcolepsy. I was, I was excuse my language, effed up. Yeah. And <laughs> eventually I had, a, I had an intervention and I can look back and I know this is how I felt at the time. It's not what I said. But I know like when they finally did it, my, my soul said, what took you guys so long? Of course, the outside said, to hell with you. I don't have a problem. But I did go in to rehab. And there I met a guy who was like a doctor as well. He was 10 years older than me, but looked 50. He was full of shit. Excuse my French. And so was I. We were fast friends. And, and in a pretty short period of time, I realized that that would be me if I was lucky. And he was like, he had trouble with his board. Uh, he was like on his fifth marriage. It was just, it was terrible. And, and so I just kind of, at that moment, surrendered to the fact that, okay, I've been hiding the fact that I'm an, I'm an addict and I was so ashamed of it. So that's why I really like avoided getting caught because like if you really knew me, like the shame was overwhelming. I didn't really know what I had. I didn't know much about addiction except it was a character flaw. Of course, that's, a, that's wrong, but... Uh, you know, I, I went to treatment and kind of just got it. Like I caught fire. I wanted to use my medical training for, for good. Um, I didn't have the greatest experience where I was. And so that also sort of has, has fueled me to provide really great care. And it, it's just a calling, you know, it's like I couldn't be doing anything else. If I won the lottery, I'd still be doing this great. It doesn't feel like work. Yeah. And I've been sober since then. Yeah. It's your purpose. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to something you said that just really resonated with me when you said that you had your intervention, your soul was so relieved. And I feel like sometimes our self-destruction or for people who struggle with addiction, our self-destruction is a call for help, you know, and even though we try to cover it up, for me, I went to treatment as well. I went to rehab here in California for my eating disorder. And like, of course, there was a ton of shame that masked my bulimia and I that my ego didn't want to get caught, but my soul, and I'd never heard it worded this way. My soul was like, someone please just help me, right. please. Like, I can't do this anymore. But it sounds like there was that 
obvious dissonance between the ego and the soul and like you somehow in the process merged the two and you went from using the medicine to enable your addiction to using your medicine to to live in a solution and to now share that with other people so that's a very powerful story thanks yeah and it's been yeah. i mean you said july june 2003 so wow right that's a long yeah. time <laughs> It is. It's pretty cool. It just means I'm older and gray, but it is pretty cool. Tell me, Um, I'm curious, you also brought up the term, and I know we'll get more into what you do, but what is your definition of this concept that you mentioned that you work with and that you created called positive recovery? Talk to me about this and what you refer, what are you referring to? Right, right. Okay, so, you know, I got sober uh, at through the 12 steps and I have no, I have no animosity. I have no problem with it. It's just that, you know, I started working in a 12 step base facility. Most places in the country are. And at some point I kind of woke up to the, to the evidence and the evidence I was ignoring was that we're not doing a great job helping people in terms of outcomes because relapse rates are, are high both during and soon after treatment. And there's even a study that shows that people get tr- that who get treatment in a 12-step-based facility who relapse do worse than those that don't even go to treatment at all. There's a lot of research that shows 12-step facilitation works, and of course it does for some people. But when you're when I found myself like wanting to treat a, a broader array of people, like people that are coming to me, of course not everybody is going to have the one solution that we used to offer. So I had this existential crisis where I, where I was thinking, you know what? I can't keep doing this because I'm not, I'm not making a dent, you know, um, I, I want to improve outcomes. So it was around the same time that I was exposed to the new field of happiness, the new science of happiness, say not, not self-help, but like actual evidence and, you know, double blind placebo controlled trials in, in terms of, you know, just having outcomes that are more than just like motivating, like, like self-help tends to be. So I, I learned about it and it seemed like positive psychology studying what, has been happening informally in 12-step fellowships for years. So I'm, I thought, okay, I'm in. And I was pulled. Like, so I, chief medical officer, we had four rehabs. I had, you know, married three kids. And I went and did this master's at UPenn under Martin Seligman, who founded Positive Psychology uh, when he was president of the American Psychological Association. And we had these great teachers, you know, I mean, just amazing, amazing experience. And what I, my, my capstone was applying the science, that science onto the addictive, onto, you know, an approach to treating the addictive disorders. And uh, it, it combines like effective existing approaches. So we're not like throwing the you know, baby out with the bathwater. It's just that for too long, you know, psychology, psychiatry has been focused too much on just what's wrong with you and trying to remove it. Mm-hmm. I mean, meanwhile, you know, depression has gone up worldwide in terms of suffering and like there was a study from 1990 to 2010 that jumped from number 15 to number 11 on the list of like all cause of suffering, more, you know, morbidity, mortality. And, uh, you know, I think it's incumbent on us to deliver more than what we've been giving people and also to deliver more to the people that are working for us. So, you know, there's two approaches and they're complementary. One is like, OK, let's find out what's wrong and work on that. And so it's important that we incorporate cognitive behavioral therapy and grief counseling and, you know, and just help with dysfunction and disorder. And we teach people how to 
be a better friend? You know, what's active, constructive listening, how to have an optimistic, explanatory style, foster growth mindset, learn about your character strengths and lead with them. So I developed this curriculum and, uh, and it's been, it's been great. And I want to improve outcomes and, and I don't charge places for it. Like for me, if on my tombstone, it said, yeah, he helped improve outcomes like that. That for me is enough. The, the training that goes into it is a little bit robust naturally because of the new information and approach, but you know, it's not at all cost prohibitive. There's a wonderful, you know, awesome curriculum that's very, that's very rich and there's videos and stuff. And, and we just have a lot of fun. And, and like the other piece, like, so half of positive recovery is also applied to treating those that treat our clients, because like, how can you model health if you're burnt out? And, mm-hmm. you know, if you ask a business owner, like, Hey, what's the most important asset you have? I mean, I'd say 99.9% always say, Oh, the people that work for me. And then you look at their budget, and that paints a different picture because there's no meaningful enrichment of that asset. There might be trainings that have to do with regulation, like nonviolent crisis intervention and HIPAA and all that. But, you know, we actually like take our folks offline and train them and they, they go through the exact same positive interventions that I went through when I got my master's and what our clients go through. And, and so, yeah, in fact, like we're kind of in the middle of another training now. We have about 10 new employees and it's and, and it's great, right? But like, cause when I'm like kind of forced to practice this stuff and my, the hypothesis, I'll just end with this. Like I, I kind of think that I can prove outcomes because like, you know, people develop addiction and disorder, like an eating disorder or whatever. Cause I just think people are trying to be happy and they're going about it the wrong way. So if we can help people's lives be more rewarding than the promise of a relapse, the chances of a relapse go down and the chances of staying sober go up. And relapse is part of any chronic disease. Like people that have high blood pressure, asthma, diabetes, they go to the doctor and they're under control. And then if they have like high blood sugar for a little bit, or after some time, the blood pressure goes up or asthma isn't perfectly controlled. They don't say treatment was a failure. No, you keep going back and you course correct. And the earlier that you intervene, when the disease becomes active again or out of control, the better the outcomes, you don't need to wait. So we, you know, we don't just worry about relapse prevention. We also worry about relapse mitigation. So intervening early. I, I, I love yeah, hearing about it. this. I, behind the scenes, we, we have a smaller team than your team here at Recovery Elevator. It's growing. It's, it's great being here and being part of the solution. But a lot of the conversations that we have are very similar to what you were just sharing. Like, how do we improve outcomes? Because the numbers are there and they're evident. And now layer on top of everything the fact that we're still in the middle of this pandemic and mental health is oh my god yeah it it needs to shift into being a priority and I, I the way that i keep saying it is like we need more menu options in the recovery world we need more <laughs> modalities yeah. we need more uh, i mean i come from a father who's been clean and sober for 11 years through aa and i don't do aa so just inviting these different modalities and being open to different options and different models and just being open is basically all I usually tell people like stay open. What works for you may not work for somebody else. What works for you today may not work tomorrow and you'll find a new tool, a new resource. So I'm just, I, I get very energized when I hear about other people who are investing their time and energy into more solutions because that's what we need right if we both have that mission of like improve outcomes people aren't staying sober as much as we want them to 
Absolutely. You know, we're going to get there. And, and I feel your pain because, you know, eating disorder is just one of those things that has very high morbidity rates, especially anorexia. Uh, I'm sorry, mortality, both have high morbidities. Finally, binge eating disorder, like it's kind of getting at least the belief, you know, the overeating piece into the mainstream, but a lot of it's not covered. And, and so, you know, your experience going inpatient, my sister went too. I mean, addiction runs in my family. She wouldn't mind me sharing this, but I mean, it's just not covered under a lot of healthcare plans. And we just don't have many menu options because of financial reasons, right? And I wish that changes. I just wish that would we would be able to provide more services. It, 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 I don't know. That's frustrating to me. I'm sure you yeah. feel it as well. I'm optimistic, though. I do feel like the trends are being set and and people are connecting to other people with that same end goal. And and I'm I'm hopeful. I'm forever a glasses half full kind of person. But um, I'm curious about this concept that you mentioned that is extremely common and that there's so much shame attached to it, especially if you go to treatment traditionally. I don't know, family, friends, society just thinks like you're in, you're out, you're good. And like you said, it's a journey and it, it has ups and downs and relapse is part of the journey for so many people. So tell me, like, personally, did you have to deal with any relapses after going to treatment? How did you deal with your journey at the beginning? Like now you're so much more informed and you are so connected to your purpose. But how was that journey for you initially? We have a lot of people who are in the first stages and the initial days and it's scary. Right. Totally. So I'll say that I, I had I felt like I had a lot of reasons to hide it and feel shame in the medical profession. Addiction is so viewed as a characterological flaw. In fact, like I was on call often. So, you know, people that come in late at night are in the gun and knife club or, you know, alcohol and drug club. And, you know, I heard this so many times from good training physicians. Like when an alcoholic comes in, they said verbatim, you just need to give them enough Librium to get them back on their bar stool. Meaning don't bother treating them, give them something so they don't have a, a negative effect here and no matter what we do, they're just going to keep doing that bad behavior anyway. And that was ingrained in me uh, as a young, impressionable, you know, doctor in training. And also, of course, like, you know, the voices in my head came from, uh, you know, watching movies, TV and listening to other conversations. So I was I was so distraught when I finally when I finally surrendered. The part of me was was very afraid. Who in the world is going to send their loved one to an addict doctor? Who's going to trust me, right? And kind of like, kind of like what you wrote on your website when the, I think about you is that, you know, I was in so much pain that that didn't matter. And, I'm, you know, it, it's, it's a rough transition to switch that mindset where, where I was in the place of doesn't matter. That doesn't matter as much as the amount of pain I'm in and I can't keep doing this. I, you know, because I wish people early or people that aren't quite in recovery can sort of bypass the pain. But that's what it took for me. And that's what it takes for a lot of people because we hold on. I think human beings hold on so much. Like there's no change happens without claw marks. That's just a common saying. And, and you know, I, I just had to be in that much pain. I was like, okay, I'm going to just do what I could do. And that was the best advice. Like, you know, one day at a time, your side of the street, these are really good slogans that you hear if you go to 12-step meetings or you talk to, like, wise people, you know. It's 
in every religion will basically say, okay, let go of what you can't control. The Stoics started that. In fact, that's where the serenity prayer comes from, is Stoicism. So, there, you know, there's a whole lot of great knowledge out there and coming from a bunch of different resources. And slowly but surely, like, I, I started to become more comfortable with myself and develop self-efficacy. And there were people that definitely treated me differently and judge, and I can't do anything about it. Like, at this point, I don't own any of their shame or any of their judgment, if you will. And yeah, so luckily I have not relapsed. And that's an anomaly because most people, you know, it takes an average of four treatment attempts to get into good long lasting recovery. And I, you know, I remember one of my professors at Penn asking me, and it was in full all my, you know, all of my classmates, like, why, how are you still sober? And, you know, I've been in the field now for a long time. I have a lot of friends and, and, and I just, I kind of, look around like a lot of people do what I did and they relapse. So uh, a lot of it's luck. You know, I, I, I wanted to relapse a lot or especially early on. I was in a, I just didn't know why I would cry. You know, I didn't want to use, but then I had felt this compelled, this like really over overwhelming compulsion. And somehow I didn't, I, I think talking about it, putting it out in front of me helped dissipate it, but it was, it was rough. I also, I also am not, I'm not, I'm not, I hear a lot of people that relapse say they forgot how bad it was. I, I, for me, for me, if I were to like drink or drug, it, it would be the equivalent. I might as well just stick my face in a fan, like a really big fan, because there's nothing good waiting for me. There wasn't, there's just not, there's nothing good that's going to come. So it's not worth it. Yeah. And that's you, kind of where I am. Much time has yeah. passed, but you still know that you keep that close and that probably keeps you very humble. Just remembering that. It's not going to be this romanticized um, <laughs> no. trip. It's de- no, it's, definitely uh, you know, not shotguns. Uh, yeah. no, not good. Tell me about um, a little bit about CBT. I'm very familiar with it. Uh, it was used um, in the treatment center that I attended, but I know it's a new concept for a lot of listeners. And I know that it's so important to not only interrupt our thinking, but to also replace our thinking. And I'm I'm really glad that you brought it up. So tell me if you could simplify CBT and how you use it with clients in recovery. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So Aaron Beck is the psychologist that that created it. He uh, is actually good friends still with Martin Seligman, who was my professor and the founder of positive psychology. So there's there's this lineage, right? There's pedigree. Now, um, at the time, um, Aaron Beck was kind of cutting his teeth they only everybody only did psychoanalysis and he was good at it he's a smart guy and he masters at anything and so but his you know his patients that had depression removed were still committing suicide because they were empty and so he he decided he he needs to develop a tool and it's not like he pulled this out of nowhere you know this this is going to sound kind of like like duh but and sorry, that's probably not the best explanation, but I think people will resonate with it. It's like, you know, no kidding, no kidding. Like, of course, it's common sense. But like, if you can change your thinking and behavior, you can, repl- you know, you can sort of do different things and feel different things. Mm-hmm. But it's not that easy to do, right? Um, things happen automatically. So, uh, you know, an example of cognitive behavioral therapy would be, you know, you ask you ask somebody about the ABCs. The activating event is A, B is your thought or belief, and C is the consequence, which is an emotion or an action. 
So a great example is somebody cut me off on the freeway and I shot him the bird out of the window. That was an activating event. The, you know, somebody got in my lane and the C, the consequence was, you know, I was angry and I shot them the, the bird. Mm-hmm. Where is the B step, the belief and thought? So A, happen, a to C like happens so fast that we forget or are, no, are not aware of the thought or belief that precedes it. And so slowing down and learning to argue with yourself when you're kind of activated is great. So the thought that precedes anger we find is my rights have been violated or my rights will be violated. And so through a lot of practice, one learns to, okay, I'm angry. Let me see what is really going on. Like what happened and are my rights really violated? Well, this isn't my lane. And sure, that was inconvenient or inconsiderate. So it was inconsiderate of the person to do, and I'm scared a little because I could have gotten a wreck. But really, were my right? I, I don't know if it's my lane. So it, it can kind of like dissipate the C. Because, I mean, once C happens, it's too late. So you get people to argue with themselves and change their thoughts and beliefs about something that happened. That is kind of easy as I can explain. Yeah, and it makes total sense. But like you said, it sounds so duh, so simple, but it's so hard because we we are so reactive. And and I love that earlier, too, you Mm -hmm. mentioned active listening, active listening, not just not just listening to other people, but listening to what is happening, this internal dialogue that we need to change because we do need to shift from this shame and guilt and reactivity to pausing slowing down uh forgiving yourself forgiving others like it takes a lot to get from being so reactive to pausing and being a little bit more proactive but most definitely being sober definitely helps (laughs) (laughs) i know it's really hard to work with somebody who isn't yeah so i i love that you use that in therapy because i do know that it's it's practice you know the way that we can work on our brain muscles is the same. You can't just like decide that you're going to run a marathon and then just run it tomorrow. You can make the decision, but you need to understand that there's a long training ahead of you and you just have to keep at it and, and keep practicing. Basically you have to practice this recovery thing. Right. Well said. I love that. You have to, you have to exercise your brain muscle, but uh, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, active constructive listening I want you to write down ACR, stands for Active Constructive Listening, and look it up. It is a great tool that you can, like, teach your your brood to, you know, to kind of – it's a great exercise. And um, it what it is is I, – I forgot who did the study, but there's there's a way that we respond to people when they share good news with us. Now, all, all those things you said about active listening are great, but this is, like, actually a specific – thing when people share good news with you there it's called capitalizing so they're like making the most of something and you can respond in one of four ways three of which hurt the relationship only one reinforces it and the one that's reinforcing is active constructive which is like somebody shares good news with you and you are in their news you're like great tell me about it where were you this is awesome so that's like that's that's the only way that helps your relationship flourish and we teach people that uh, because relationships are the best resource for recovery uh, from heart transplants or, or addiction. So the, the three other ways of responding, sadly, I use a lot of them. One is passive constructive, which is, oh, that's nice. Now you're constructive because it's like a positive thing, but you're not really in it. You're passive and do that all the time with my kids, unfortunately, and that hurts relationships. So like being aware of it helps to kind of be engaged and give because people don't remember what you say as much as how you made them feel. 
the two there's other styles are deconstructive so like active deconstructive is when you actually like oh wait that's not good news have you thought about how much more you know taxes you'll have to pay with that raise and how much more responsibility you have and like so that and people do that out of the kindness of their heart they're like wait a minute they don't see all these bad things they're not they're not necessarily like trying to hurt you and then there's passive there's a uh, yeah passive deconstructive is when you one up them like oh yeah well i got a better raise or you just talk about yourself like they share good news with you and you go oh you know on the way here i hurt i i got in a wreck and i, I hurt my fender this is like a little scratch but and not even like acknowledging it i so, love I, this I, I, a active yeah. constructive thanks, thanks, thanks. listening active responding no responding active constructive responding sorry no, acr i'm gonna look this up i love it and you're right like a lot of the times the intention isn't negative but we're caught in a behavior right. that isn't benefiting the relationship and it's it's pretty it sounds like okay i just know that i need to be in it with people i need to be in the moment and it's one of the other things it sounds so simple but it is hard learning to be fully present there with somebody and not and not try to fix and not try to give a solution and not try to project your fear like you're saying even out of the kindness of your heart but here's here's a loophole to your plan here's the fear and just just be (laughs) just be with the person and their emotion i love this and when you're not perfect about it you can always later go hey can i circle back when you share the good news i'm afraid i didn't respond like the way i wanted to so can you share it again with me i just want to hear about it like it's okay to ask permission to circle back with friends. And that's like, there, there should be about, uh, you know, I, I love Brene Brown's work and especially she talks about like marble jar friends. And it's a kind that like every time somebody does something like that, it puts a marble in the jar over time, the marble jar becomes full and you know who you're real, you know, you know who your authentic friends are, that type of thing. Yeah. And you can always, you don't have to wait for a tragedy or a, crisis to occur to make amends like what you're talking about just makes me think of this consistent uh, habitual state of making amends and going back and rerouting if you have to because of course we're not perfect and sometimes especially with kids like you mentioned I I I, I'm not perfect and I'm like oh shoot I totally ignored you or was on my phone or you know it's it's hard but that self-awareness I think is key Tell me how your life has changed. Do you feel like you were a completely different person in 2003? Does it feel like you are just this newborn Jason? Yeah, I love, I love the movie Avatar. And they talk about the Nabu people. Like, they believe that you're always born twice. And like, yeah, the part of me, a part of me woke up or was reborn. Or I don't know how you want to say it, but I mean... I'm still the same person. Like towards the end of my addiction, I wasn't, it wasn't me. I was completely like blasted. And so, you know, this, the stuff I would say and do, I was most, a lot of times it's kind of like not in a, not kind of in a blackout, but like, you know, just, it was the drugs doing the, doing the deal. And yeah, I, I, I feel like, I feel like this is true of anybody that's in recovery. Cause you know, we lose the luxury of just saying F it. And, and it really is, it, it is a, it is a tight introspection that's forced upon the person in recovery where like, I truly believe like every decision, no matter how big or small gets me towards recovery or towards a relapse. And when I say recovery, I don't just mean like sober. I mean like a full complete lifestyle. And when, when you're that mindful, I mean, the growth is 
it has to happen, right? Like, you know, is, is this action indicative of the, who I want to become? You know, like a lot of people don't have to like worry about that for every little decision. And it's not like it's so exhausting, but you know, yeah, I mean, I, I just think I, I'm probably a better version of myself. You'd have to ask those around me. Like I, I don't walk around thinking that, or it's really hard for me to even like kind of be that judge. But I mean, certainly I'm, I'm, I, I'm honest now. I was then, and I'm, I'm more generous. All right, I listen better. I'm more empathetic. But, but a lot, you know, I just, I also think it just kind of, it, yeah. I hope I answered your question. I think you, I'm just kind of rambling. No, at this point. You, you totally did. Tell me how you navigate having all of this knowledge and this being the work that you do. How do you navigate challenging situations when they like personally arise? What What are your go to tools or mechanisms? Uh, <laughs> making amends a lot because I'm <laughs> imperfect. You know, like uh, I wish I could say that I, you know, I I make high quality connections all the time at work. I don't. I I but I do. I do give myself the permission to be imperfect and circle back and make amends. And right. It's not like a, they're not big things, but the trick is like the more I do that, then the faster it happens. And then it's more prevention mm-hmm. say. So, you know, um, I, yeah, I like, it just takes practice and be, and like, like I, I tell people, you're going to make mistakes. Like nobody, nobody gets sober and perfect. And, and that expectation, it can also lead to a lot of depression and, and hopelessness, but, but just being compassionate with yourself and, and keep working on yourself. And over time, I mean, I, I think the best tool I have is the ABCs, uh, you know, just sort of like pausing when agitated, arguing with myself, what am I, am I really, is this really what's going on? Or is this a story that's going on in my head? And, and then having that, doing that practice over time, it kind of happens quicker. Yeah, you catch yourself. Yeah, you catch yourself faster. And and you're right, it does take practice. And I do want to speak on what you said of letting go of this perfect idea that we're going to have it all together because we're not. And I think that when we let go of perfection towards ourselves, we also let go of perfection of others. Because I don't know about you, but like when I was dealing with my super intense perfectionism, mentality then i was expecting the same from other people you know i wasn't giving if you're not giving yourself that empathy it's going to be really hard to extend that to whoever you're spending your time with so it's just so neat to see how all of the work that we do on ourselves is just going to be a ripple effect for the connections that we have with those around us absolutely yeah well said All right. Well, we have reached the rapid fire round. So I have a few final questions. But if you can answer these in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. What is your favorite non-alcoholic beverage? Oh, uh, diet orange soda. (laughs) Nice. What would you say to your younger self? Oh, God, that's so hard. 30 seconds. I love this. I would say... Go find Amy Powers and marry her and uh, get in recovery really quickly. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Other people, other people, and other people. Love it. What book are you reading right now? Oh, um, uh, uh, it's by Ken Follet, I can tell you. Um, It's a dangerous something. I'm, I'm pulling up Kindle right now as we speak, and it will go right to it. I'm reading it. Uh, it I, a dangerous fortune. Is it good? 
Yeah, but I'm seven percent into it. But yeah, good so far. I mean, Ken Follett is a great, great author. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about joining us on this journey? Uh, God, what are you waiting for? You know, try it out. What's the worst thing that can happen? And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to alcohol if line. So you may have to say adios <laughs> <Okay>. if. <laughs> you might be a redneck. So you might have to say adios to alcohol if it's causing more negative consequences in your life than it's adding benefit. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Jason Powers. I'm really grateful that you are on our show. Can't wait to air this with our listeners. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to interview you. Take this care. Will be awesome. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Have All a right. great day. And that's a wrap. Before I say adios, I want to give you a little challenge. Think about our intro earlier. How do you spend your waiting periods? Do you know that you can come back to yourself simply by breathing and being mindful? Throw yourself into tasks. Feel the water as you wash the dishes. Taste the food as you eat your meals. Peace begins with you. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, you are your own paradise. I'll talk to you all next week. thinking.